electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome to Last Call. I'm Contessa Brewer in for Brian Sullivan tonight. Air travel chaos, a perfect storm of events is creating misery across the country. GM CEO Mary Barra is sounding off about a landmark deal with Tesla. A highly anticipated weight loss drug gets a big wake up call. A Hollywood power duo injects new fuel into the Formula One investing frenzy. Plus it's Make It Mondays. We'll meet the man making a solid life off liquid death. And pickleball is America's hottest sport, but it could be torching profits for health insurers. That and much more. Last Call is up right now. Good evening from CNBC's global headquarters. We begin with Vladimir Putin, first cornered and now trying to quell concerns that his days as Russia's president could be numbered. In just the last few hours, Putin talked publicly for the first time since that brokered truce that ended this weekend's rebellion by Russian mercenary forces. The embattled leader claims the mutiny failed because, and I quote here, the entire Russian society united and rallied everyone. And he says Russia's enemies have miscalculated. Putin then met with leaders of Russia's security services, attempting to project stability, not only to the international community, but internally as well. This is the latest chapter in an extraordinary, even bizarre story. The man behind the private military rebellion against Russia, Yevgeny Prigozhin, head of the Wagner Group, who denounced Moscow and its military leaders for lying about the reasons they invaded Ukraine. Though the immediate crisis seems to have subsided, we are watching for any aftershocks just below the surface. Russia has, of course, nearly 4,500 nuclear weapons. It has the world's fifth largest army, and it's one of the biggest suppliers of energy and agricultural products on the planet. And with that nation on the brink of a coup and all the geopolitical instability likely to accompany that, the markets basically gave one giant shrug. For now, it looks like it is a non-event in the short term. Markets are breathing a bit of a sigh of relief because the worst case scenario did not play out. Chinese stimulus, U.S. recession, probably more relevant than Prigozhin. And sure enough, stocks closed the day down just modestly for the most part. Dow pretty much flat. The S&P 500 down about four-tenths of a percent. And a hit for tech stocks dragged the Nasdaq. Major defense contractors ended the day in the red. Now, you'd think they might benefit from the sudden risks around an unstable nuclear state. Meanwhile, commodities, oil prices holding steady. Safe haven gold basically unchanged. Wheat prices are down. Is the market asking for trouble and shoving aside these geopolitical concerns, or are the markets right on the mark? For more on the geopolitical risks and the fallout, let's bring in former U.S. Secretary of Defense and former CIA Director Leon Panetta. Secretary Panetta, it's good to talk to you today. 
What do you see as the biggest potential threat for global stability on the heels of what we saw unfold this weekend? Well, you know, the, the greatest threat right now is uh, the instability and uncertainty in Russia as to ultimately what's going to happen here. Uh, it's really hard to tell where it goes from here. Uh, in many ways, uh, Putin is paying a price for what he created. Uh, the Wagner Group uh, and Pagoshin uh, uh, are his creation. Uh, this group of mercenaries that's been deployed to Asia and Africa and Ukraine committed a lot of uh, atrocities uh, during that process. And then Pagoshin obviously spent a lot of time being very critical of Putin uh, and the Ukrainian war and how it was being handled by Russia. Uh, Putin really didn't take any steps to try to deal with uh, Prigozhin at that time. When he tried to bring him into the Russian military, that's when Prigozhin then conducted this coup. So this is still largely an issue that Putin himself bears most of the blame for. And we're going to have to see whether or not he's able to ultimately bring some degree of stability out of this mess. We saw how the business world reacted when Russia invaded Ukraine, moving assets out of that country, moving assets out of Russia, trying to draw down any reliance on that particular country or Putin as a leader. Does this introduce a new level of economic threat? The fact that Putin was at risk at all and, and may still be at this point. What's your assessment? Well, from my, from my intelligence background, I have to tell you, the one thing you never do is underestimate Putin. Uh, the reality is that he is in power. Uh, he has uh, basically made clear that, uh, that he's going to take steps to try to assure that there is stability in Russia. Uh, the problem right now, very frankly, is whether or not he's going to take steps to bring those that were involved in an insurrection to justice. And from what he said today, he's basically going to allow them to either go to Belarus uh, or be able to go back home or be able to uh, fight with the Russians. Uh, so uh, there's still a lot that remains to be seen here as to whether or not uh, Putin is going to be able to restore some degree of stability. But I wouldn't bet against him. This is a K KGB agent who always keeps making sure that he stays in the game. Are there other things that the United States, that the NATO allies, that other international community could be doing right now to shore up? I, I mentioned the nuclear weapons that Russia has. Don't forget the, the cyber attacks, that army of cyber criminals housed in Russia. Are there other things that the international community could be doing to stave off the threat of any instability in Russia? Well, let's not make any mistake. Uh, Russia remains an adversary of the United States. Uh, and uh, Putin's primary goal is to create instability in the United States. That's what he's after. But the real issue right now that we're concerned about is Ukraine. And I think the United States and our allies are smart to basically stay focused on the war in Ukraine. Uh, and by providing the support that Ukraine needs, uh, I think this is a very important moment uh, in which the Ukrainians, if they take advantage of the offensive that they're conducting right now, and they seem to be making some progress uh, in this offensive, 
that uh, if they can continue to do that, uh, it might ultimately force Putin either to withdraw or to negotiate. And that would be a good thing in terms of trying to resolve the war in Ukraine. How does Russia operate in Ukraine without the mercenaries that have been functioning on behalf of Russia? Well, Russia has a, a large army. Uh, unfortunately, that army has uh, proven not to be very effective in this war. I mean, it was assumed, very frankly, when the invasion began, that Putin would be able within a few days to uh, ca capture Kiev, the, ca the capital, uh, and bring down the government. That didn't happen uh, because uh, the Ukrainians were courageous and brave and had support from uh, the United States and our NATO allies. Uh, they were able to stop that invasion, and more so, they've been able to regain territory that was uh, captured by the Russians. So I think Ukraine has the advantage right now, without question. And because of the current instability that's going on, I think this is an opportunity for Ukraine to take even greater advantage of the moment in order to regain more territory. Secretary Panetta, thank you for giving us the benefit of your experience and your perspective. Appreciate that. Good to be with you. Meantime, here's what else happened with your money today. Let's take a look at the studs and the duds in the S&P 500. The biggest winner of the day, Boston Properties, climbing nearly 10% after a $2 billion Manhattan real estate deal raises optimism around all office space. We'll have more on that story a little bit later. Boston Properties is the biggest publicly traded developer in the country. And for the biggest loser, Carnival falling more than 7% after earnings, costs rising, leading Carnival to forecast some slimming in profits over the quarters ahead. We should note, though, shares have been up just a little more than 80% year to date, and there was a lot to like in that earnings report. Let's also take a look at futures and see how things are shaping up for tomorrow morning. And there you have it, all in the green, but just barely. Up next, an unfolding air travel nightmare across the country. Plus, why more of Wall Street is suddenly turning south on Tesla's epic run. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Meet Gail. Her thing is being a supermom, and supermom has a lot on her supersized plate. <laughs> Ain't that the truth. But at Walmart Pharmacy, Supermom recently got her whole family updated on all their vaccines. We knocked it out during a grocery run. No appointment. That's Next Level Supermom. From pneumonia to shingles, HPV, and more, get no-cost vaccinations from an expert pharmacist where you already shop. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart. $0 copay with most insurances. State age and health restrictions may apply. Time for tomorrow's news. Tonight, the stories you'll be talking about, we hope, tomorrow morning. 
Although maybe you, this one you don't want to talk about. You're just going to have to endure it. Severe weather, snarling travel on the East Coast. According to FlightAware, there are more than 6,000 delays and almost 1,700 cancellations. The airports most affected are major hubs for United and Delta, including Newark, LaGuardia, JFK, Atlanta. New York City's Emergency Management Department just issued travel advisory for this evening into tomorrow, warning New Yorkers not to travel during heavy rain and thunderstorms. Next up, you've got Robinhood, the investment brokerage firm, laying off 7% of staff in a third round of layoffs in just a little more than a year. It equals out to about 150 employees this time around. The company says those layoffs are due to adjust volumes and better aligned team structures. Robinhood is up in extended trading on that news because everybody loves an efficiently run company. Finally, Lucid seeing some green. According to Barron's, the EV company's largest shareholder, Saudi Public Investment Fund, bought more than 265 million shares at $1.8 billion. That purchase was made June 22nd, and the stock is understandably up on that news. The Aston Martin deal in extended trading as well. Meanwhile, Wall Street is starting, is it, to turn its back on Tesla? Goldman Sachs downgraded the automaker from buy to neutral, in part, the analyst writes, because it's facing a difficult pricing environment for new electric vehicles. And last week, Morgan Stanley's longtime Tesla bull, Adam Jonas, and Barclays both downgraded the stock. Tesla stock dropped more than 6% today. Joining me with further insight, widely followed Tesla watcher and the future fund managing partner and co-founder, Gary Black. Gary, good to talk to you today. Goldman Thank Sachs, you, they downgraded and it came with the price hike uh, or at least a hike to its price target to $248. I watched that stock close today at 241.05. Is there more gas in the tank for Tesla? I guess I really should say more charge in the battery. Look, there's two types of downgrades from Wall Street. One is when there's a fundamentals change and one is price change. Fundamentals change would be the category volume growth declining or Tesla's losing share or there's more price cuts coming or gross margin. What, what we've seen from Goldman, Morgan Stanley, Barclays last week, these are all based on the fact that Tesla has gone up a lot. And Wall Street is notoriously bad at timing Tesla based on price. Remember 2020, fewer than half the analysts had buys and the stock went up sevenfold because they launched the Model Y, which was a new um, a new TAM, a new total adjustable market is, is a CUV. And they just blew out the volumes in 20 and 2021. And you have something very similar happening in the third quarter where Cybertruck, which is a new TAM for Tesla, pickups 20% of the market. Uh, there's a million eight pre-orders. Um, and that's going to come out and it's going to attract interest in the whole Tesla category. Because when people see one of these things, you know, riding around, yeah. they're going to go to the Tesla website, or they're going to Tesla store, and they may not buy a Cybertruck because Cybertruck's not for everybody, but they'll buy a Tesla 3 or they'll buy a Tesla Model Y. And that's what happened in 2020. So, you know, when when, it, when the Wall Street downgrades based on price, uh, to me, it's noise. And historically, they've had a terrible track record at timing Tesla from a valuation standpoint. Let me ask you something. Uh, so it was pointed out to me that NVIDIA shares and Tesla yeah. shares over time are tracking somewhat in Together. tandem. Yeah. Why is that? Well, and that's that's a great question. Um, that's recent. That's not new. I mean, that's that's not something that has happened historically. 
In the last four days, Tesla's down about 12% as people started to downgrade the stock. NVIDIA's down 7%. That's one of the reasons Tesla was up so much uh, in May and early June, is because people started to look at it as more of an AI play. Because coming out of the uh, annual meeting, there was a lot of excitement about FSD as it entered, you know, kind of almost near autonomy. And because uh, Elon put some robots out there. And so there's been a lot of talk that there'll be a fourth business segment at Tesla. You've got EVs, you've got charging, you've got energy, and AI is that fourth segment. And if you could license FSD, so think about what you've seen on the charging side, where, you know, for instance, you know, the, 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 the charging, um, Tesla's charging uh, superchargers are being shared with everybody else. You could see something similar on FSD because Tesla is way ahead of everybody on getting uh, near autonomy. Hmm. And you could have other companies say, you know what, I'd really like to license that and trying to build it myself. Tesla has neural nets, they have millions of miles of experience, and they can do a much better job getting EVs to drive on their own than anybody else can. So I think that's why it's become known more of an, e an AI play. And that's why it's been following, I think it's following NVIDIA more than NVIDIA is following Tesla. It's interesting that you brought up the chargers because we heard from General Motors CEO Mary Barra at the Aspen Ideas Festival. And, and today she tackled the decision to adopt Tesla's charging standard. Let me play this. We have aggregated uh, many different charging companies uh, into the My Chevy app or the My Cadillac app, the My GMC app. And we wanted, we didn't want to lose that relationship because think about how often you need, need to charge. And so I think one of the breakthroughs was, you know, they agreed it, you know, they would provide the information that it go through yours and also that we get the same cost for our customers that Tesla customers do. And so as we saw that that change occurred, um, we evaluated it. And then we also looked at it from a customer perspective. And our technical team said, you know, frankly, there's a, the, the other charging standard was done, um, you know, by the standards body, the Society of Automotive Engineers. But when you looked at it, we, we thought the durability, the reliability, and the cost was cheaper. And so, you know, anytime you make a decision for, from a customer perspective and you're not choosing the most cost-effective, better solution, you do that at your own peril. And then for General Motors, um, it allowed us in one, you know, agreement to make, uh, starting next year, instead of having 13,000 chargers across this country available, we'll have 25,000. What impact, Gary, does that have on this broader EV race? Mary knows the number one reason why people don't choose to, to, to adopt an EV from a gas-powered car is they're afraid, they have range anxiety, they're afraid they're going to run out of juice. And Tesla has 17,000 chargers in the United States. They work twice as fast as the other chargers out there. And they're in great locations. They're right off the highway. They're on all the maps, whereas the GM and Ford um, EV chargers tend to be near the dealers because that's where they've put them. And so the GM's made a very smart move to say, look, we're going to adopt the Tesla standard. We're going to let our EVs juice up, for lack of a better word, at the Tesla chargers because that's the way you get more people to adopt EVs because that's what they're afraid of. They're afraid they're going to run out of juice. So we calculate it's worth about 20 cents incremental per earnings, uh, 20 cents of earnings incremental to Tesla in order to have GM and Ford and now Rivian, and you'll see others adopt the, the Tesla standard. 
And that's why yeah. we think you're going to get into 2024 and you're going to see estimates for 2024 start to move up because of the, the, the Cybertruck, which again has a million eight pre-orders and because everybody's adopting the Tesla standard, which is extraordinary when you think about it, that GM and Ford have admitted they can't do it themselves and that Tesla's doing a better job than they are. Gary, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Okay, I, thanks, Contessa. I also want to mention that NBC Universal News Group is the media partner of the Aspen Ideas Festival. Still ahead, we want to keep people off the streets. Now, here's a revolutionary idea pay them the debate over universal basic income after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. Junkies shooting up tents and trash taking over the sidewalks. Mom and pop businesses shudder and some shutter their storefronts. Across the nation, homelessness is plaguing American cities and confounding business interests. In the United States, there are an estimated 571,000 people without homes. 171,000 of those are in California alone. And while many Americans have ideas or opinions about why people are homeless, the University of California, San Francisco launched an ambitious survey of homeless people and asked them why they have nowhere to live. The top answer was not addiction nor mental health challenges. It was lack of money. 82% say a one-time payment of $5,000 to $10,000 would have prevented them from becoming homeless. And the vast majority say as little as $300 a month in rental subsidies could have kept homelessness at bay. Could a universal basic income be a simple solution? Let's get to our panel. Joining me now, AEI economic policy analyst and CNBC contributor, James Pethokoukas, and Operation Hope chairman and CEO, John Hope Bryant. It's good of you gentlemen to join me. I appreciate your time. Uh, I, I understand here, John, that you've been sort of outspoken about universal basic income. Tell me a little bit about what you think. Well, before I say that, let me say this. I love your show, by the way. Uh, the, I was homeless myself. And that's an important thing to make obvious in this conversation. I'm not talking about something for which I have no experience. Uh, I lived at La Tijera and Airport behind an old Italian restaurant in a parking lot in my Jeep for six months of my life when I was 18 years old. Um, I was economically homeless, meaning I made bad mistakes, bad decisions, which goes to this question um, about universal basic income. If I give a homeless man a million dollars and do nothing else, he'll be broke within a year. Um, and that's not $500 a month or $300. By the way, we should, we should all be for compassion and capitalism. We should all be about basic decency. I mean, sustenance, poverty is a roof over your head, food on your table, reasonable health care. We should all be trying to solve that. All other forms of poverty beyond that are typically mindset based. 
And all studies show, uh, most studies show, and I commend California for doing this one uniquely by asking occupants of the homeless people themselves, but most studies show that two-thirds of homelessness are actually tied to substance abuse, mental health, and other issues, which started actually in, a, in the term of Ronald Reagan, who I knew, born on the same day as him. I think he's a great man, but he made a mistake on public policy. And homelessness shot up 400% during his term because he defunded mental health. So it's a complicated issue to your question about, about universal basic income is not a silver bullet by itself. Most people are financially illiterate, by the way, not homeless people. The average American yeah. has got too much money. money. But, but, you know, the interesting thing about this survey is that it showed that people, before they became homeless, were living on roughly $900 a month. You've seen that. Jimmy, you know what the CPI data is showing us about the cost of shelter going up. And it's not just California. It's not just New York City or Miami or San Diego. I went to Bozeman, Montana last year, and I saw a tent city up and down Bozeman. Why? So many people had come in. The cost of real estate had skyrocketed. The landlords no longer wanted to rent to people, working people, people with jobs. And all of a sudden, there's no more housing. What's your take? Is, is this universal basic income something that could potentially keep people off the streets? I would note that even the uh, uh, UC San Francisco, which conducted this study, uh, their their first suggestion is not cutting people checks. It is not a cash first plan. It is a housing first plan. And that's one thing I think most homelessness experts agree on. The first thing is to get people into housing. Now, and that housing probably shouldn't be a bunch of people in one big room. Uh, it should be housing, which is more like apartments, a, a door with a lock, and start with that. And then usually people who find themselves homeless, it isn't just one thing. Right. It might be they lost a job, but also it's a combination of things, including usually being separated from your family. So usually the, the sort of the, the exit ramp from you know uh, some sort of supplied housing and, and healthcare, the, the final exit ramp is 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 the cash. During the, uh, so that's you know, I would focus on, and I would focus on building more homes. The city of Stockton in 2019 piloted a, an experiment on universal basic income. It gave 125 city residents, all making below $46,000 a year, $500 a month for two years. And then after the first year, Jimmy John, what they found is that participants saw a 12% increase in full-time employment and the rates of depression and anxiety declined, that the majority of the $500 was spent on food, clothes, auto mm -hmm. care, and utilities. To be clear, universal ba basic income means it goes to everybody, not a certain group of people, that in, the individuals in the household get it, not just the household, and that there is no, no um, tit for tat. You don't have to prove that you're working or that you're not using drugs or whatever in order to get that income. A 12% increase in full-time employment. Do you think that it's something that deserves from the business community more attention, Jimmy? Listen, I, you know, paternalism is a bad idea, all right? It's, 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 people think it's a bad idea, it sounds bad, but I think anyone who has watched video of the scenes, maybe most famously in San Francisco, but certainly other cities as well. As well, It's difficult to make the case that what you should do is hand anybody a check for $5,000 or $10,000 or 500. Listen, one thing I've learned sort of doing public policy, silver bullet solutions 
rarely work. They usually ignore a lot of things. And I think homelessness is a perfect example in which you have a multifaceted problem uh, that's going to require an expensive, probably, multifaceted solution beginning with housing. Uh, I think fundamentally, I think it's just a different issue than supplying a basic income to sort of everybody, rich, middle class or poor. John, you you get the the final word. You probably have more expertise than anybody else who's going to weigh in on this tonight. Yeah, so I I respectfully disagree with him. There is a silver bullet. My mother invested $500 in me and I started a business and I now have 400 employees. If she hadn't done that, if the banker hadn't come in my classroom and taught me financial literacy, and I asked this banker, how do you, how, what do you do for a living? And how do you get rich legally? <laughs> so I'm a banker, not finance entrepreneurs. I said, whatever that is, I'm going to be that. If people hadn't laid into me with a silver bullet called investment, I wouldn't be who I am today. We, I think you can have compassion. $500. We agree on this. Yeah. And expect for that to solve anything. But you should invest $500 or whatever it is required to, get somebody, to make somebody a contributing person in the economy. The last couple of years has caused a spike in affordable housing. My company, Promise Homes, provides affordable housing on a reasonable basis with a return to their investors. You can do well and do good at the same time. These are not mutually exclusive conversations. We need to have yeah. serious people around a table uh, talking about this from a perspective of how do you invest in people to give them skills for jobs of the future or start businesses. But your human capital is the best capital we've got in this country. It's, it's what we've been banking on since the beginning of this country. And we should be doing that again now, not writing people off uh, because it's just too difficult. John, Jimmy, thank you for the conversation. Appreciate it. By the way, those experiments happening in cities across the nation. Still ahead, safety fears put one of the most anticipated weight loss drugs on ice. But a flood of others are set to hit the market. Are the risks outpacing the rewards? We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's time for our last call watch list. Names that we're keeping an eye on. First up, the poster child for AI, NVIDIA. Its shares slumped 3% today and briefly fell below the trillion-dollar valuation mark. And other chipmakers followed suit. Both AMD and Broadcom declined again for the seventh straight session. Next up, SL Green Realty. Shares surged more than 19% today. The Real Estate Investment Trust has sold a near 50% stake in one of its New York City office buildings at an impressive $2 billion valuation. The news gives hope that the worst might be behind Manhattan's troubled commercial real estate market. Shares of other commercial real estate-focused REITs like Renato, Hudson, Pacific Properties, and Office Properties Income Trust all getting a boost today. And last up, Pfizer. Shares of the pharmaceutical giant slipped more than 3% today. Pfizer says it will end development of one of its experimental obesity pills due to elevated liver enzymes in patients who took the drug during clinical trials. But Pfizer is not giving up on weight loss pills. It will focus on its other oral obesity medication, Danilipron. I practiced it and I just can't get it out there. Currently in phase two of its clinical trial, Pfizer isn't alone, though, in the race for weight loss pills. Over the weekend, Novo Nordisk reported success in its experimental obesity pill, saying it helped overweight or obese adults lose about 15% of their body weight. And today, Eli Lilly is reporting its experimental pill helped patients lose as much as 24% of their body weight in trials. All of these companies, 
just racing to dominate the booming weight loss drug market. But is the race for more obesity drugs outpacing the understanding of the potential health risks that they could possibly cause? Joining me now to offer some insight is Dr. Deborah Horn of the University of Texas Houston Medical School. She's the medical director for the UT Center of Obesity Medicine and Metabolic Performance. Dr. Horn, good to talk to you today. Are you concerned about these off-label uses of other drugs for weight loss? Uh, well, that's a little bit t different topic than the safety mechanism that you were just referring to. But when we think about off-label use of medication, we think about using a drug for something other than what the FDA approved. An example of that might be Ozempic, but remember, the same medication is available under the brand name Wagovi. Okay, so when people are coming into your facility desperate for a change, how often is it that, that the drugs are the first line of, of action for these patients? In today's world in obesity, it's very common for us to initiate medication very early in treatment. Most people have tried hard with lifestyle intervention, nutrition, physical activity, stress, sleep to get their weight in place. But for many people, their physiology is too strong. And we really need like diabetes or high blood pressure to give them some medication to help. The success of weight loss drugs has propelled really the whole industry uh, to move into more research and to focus more efforts on trying to find new solutions. Is that a good thing? I think innovation is a great thing, especially in our field of obesity medicine. The tides that we are seeing turn this year, this week at the ADA meeting, so many new molecules becoming uh, pushed into phase two and phase three trials are really going to demonstrate what we can do to close the gap between lifestyle intervention and bariatric surgery. We're showing right now that uh, graphic that shows where Medicaid covers obesity drugs. But when you're looking at the cost of obesity, nearly $200 billion annually, according to the CDC. Uh, are you thinking that it's time for the government to truly think about how to put the money where it might be most effective when it comes to these drugs? It is clearly time. We have been um, working so hard at the federal level with the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act to get Medicare coverage uh, that's in addition to what you showed about the lack of Medicaid coverage in many states. And even with commercial payers, only two to three uh, out of every five Americans who has commercial insurance based on their employment has coverage. And it's time. It's time now to treat the disease that's leading to so many other diseases. Dr. Horn, we appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Take care, Contessa. Time now for our Quicker Than the Ticker, the news that matters in business and beyond. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. Severe weather ripped through the nation this weekend. Powerful storms, tornadoes, softball-sized hail caused deaths, damage, and widespread power outages. Next weekend could break travel records. AAA predicts 50.7 million Americans hit the road or skies for July 4th. Our move to the metaverse getting closer as the first Olympic champions in eSports have been crowned in Singapore. Yes, Olympics for virtual sports. Archery, dance, chess, sailing. Hey, maybe pickleball players should consider computer play. That sport is likely to cause as much as half a billion bucks in injuries this year, according to a note from UBS. Caught on camera, 
winning the kayaking lottery, a humpback whale swims alongside off Australia's Bondi Beach. The world has a new ugliest dog, seven-year-old Scooter, a Chinese crested, the breed winning at least 10 times since 2002. And Canadian couples compete in a wife-carrying obstacle contest. Winner gets the wife's weight in beer. Wait, I'm out of time? Those people need more on their plate to do than carrying their wives around. Coming up, as if Formula One wasn't hot enough, two of Hollywood's biggest stars jumping in. Is the investing frenzy overheating, or are we just getting behind the wheel? Stay with us. Welcome back. We've got a bonus. Tomorrow's News Tonight story. There's a new revelation coming out of Microsoft's legal fight with the FTC and its fight to acquire Activision Blizzard. According to internal documents disclosed in court, Microsoft considered acquiring Sega along with Bungie Games. That interest came back in 2020, according to the eagle-eyed folks at The Verge. Microsoft saw a big opportunity to help drive Xbox Game Pass subscriptions across its platforms. Sega, probably best known for its Sonic the Hedgehog franchise, and Bungie, the popular Destiny series. But alas, nothing ended up happening. The Verge says it's not clear why more advanced moves failed to materialize. There's your bonus. Some of the biggest stars in Hollywood are entering the F1 circuit. Today, a group of investors, including Ryan Reynolds, Rob McElhenney, and Michael B. Jordan, bought a 24% stake in Alpine. In a statement, the team said the $218 million investment would help Alpine's growth plans and sporting ambitions in F1. The deal comes as the popularity of Formula One has surged. You think it's because of Netflix's documentary, Drive to Survive? Everybody I know has watched it. So could we see more A-listers get into one of the fastest growing and fastest sports in the world? For more on this, let's bring someone who knows a thing or two about sports acquisitions, Mark Gannis. He's the founder and CEO of Sports Corp and has helped drive many sales, relocations, stadium developments for NFL teams and other sport franchises. It's great to have you with us on Last Call. It's great to be on, Contessa. All right. So first of all, what does it do when you have movie stars getting into the car racing business? Well, first thing it does is it brings a lot of attention uh, to, the, to car racing. Now, Formula One is strong and is a great global brand, but it also needs more cross, crossover appeal. Someone like Ryan Reynolds, Michael B. Jordan coming in, these guys add a lot of uh, attention uh, free media, social media, and it's been a formula that's really worked when they partner with sophisticated capital like Redbird Capital. Combined, they, they, they make the asset far more valuable. Is this a vanity investment, like something it's cool to do when you get to go to the owner's box at F1? And, you know, look in Las Vegas, they've got packages at Wynn starting at a million dollars for one weekend's worth of sporting entertainment. I mean, is this the kind of investment you make because it's fun? Or is this the kind of investment that has the potential to, to bring in a real return for those who are making it? Uh, real return for those who are making it. To come into this kind of deal with Alpine, uh, the racing team, there had to be a, a big marketing and business plan put together, which uh, Redbird Capital did with Ryan Reynolds and, and the other investors that came in. They look at this as being worth 900 million or so today, 
but in a very short period of time, it could be worth in the multiple billions of dollars. Just like the Wrexham soccer team that Ryan Reynolds purchased, uh, it got attention, multimedia publicity. They did blitzes with, with free media, social media, with the fans. And now that team is worth easily 10 times the amount that Reynolds paid for just a couple of years ago. You know, Mark, uh, all eyes in Las Vegas are on the November race coming up for the first time F1 takes over the Las Vegas Strip. I talked to one of the preeminent Vegas economists who predicted that the economic impact of that will be greater than a billion dollars, which Las Vegas hasn't seen. So when you, and, and here's what they told me, not only that, but they don't have their international visitation fully back up to where it was pre-pandemic levels. And nothing reaches an international crowd, a well-heeled, you know, uh, people who can afford million-dollar weekend sporting packages. No, they, can, they can come in on this, and, and they're hoping that it brings in more international business. Where else could F1 have a big impact? Well, F1 is obviously going to have, has a big impact in the United States. We now, Vegas makes three races in the U.S., which is more than anywhere else on the planet. Their inroads into Asia have actually been very modest. They haven't had a race in China in a number of years. They race in Japan. They race in Singapore. This has become truly a global sport, but they have to limit the number of races that they have to roughly 25 it's just you can't do many more than that and still be able to be competitive and move the teams all around the world. Uh, where F1 is really looking to increase their value is at the franchise level. The teams themselves, you have Mercedes, you have Red Bull, you have Alpine, uh, you have Aston Martin. They're looking to make those teams, there are 10 teams, they may get to 11 or 12 very shortly, and they're looking to make those franchises like sports franchises in the United States, uh, like the soccer teams in the EPL and Europe. Alpine, I think I called it Alpine, but you know, <laughs> come see, come That's saw. That's how it's spelled, right? oui, <laughs> Mark, thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure talking to you. My pleasure, anytime. Coming up, it's Make It Mondays on Last Call. A tall task to make water seem hardcore, but one entrepreneur has turned it into a $700 million juggernaut. We'll speak with the CEO of Liquid Death, Next. Welcome back. It's time for our Make It Monday series where we spotlight some amazing entrepreneurs across America. Tonight, meet Mike Cesario. He's the CEO of the beverage company Liquid Death. And the tagline here, murder your thirst. You heard that right. Here's a look. What's the dumbest possible name for a super healthy, safest beverage possible? Hi, I'm Mike Cesario. I'm 40 years old, and I'm the founder and CEO of Liquid Death. I had this idea of doing a canned water just geared as like a, a stunt to poke fun at energy drinks. Why aren't there more healthy products that still have funny, cool, irreverent branding? Water is not yoga. Water is liquid death. So much of the marketing is baked into the product, where if someone sees this on the shelf, am I willing to bet they have to pick it up because it's so weird or interesting, and then they're probably gonna take their phone out, take a photo of it, and post it on their social channels for free to their hundreds of followers. Our first month, 
we made a hundred thousand dollars in sales and we spent about two thousand dollars on marketing year one when we were internet only 2019 we did about 2.8 million then 2020 pandemic year first year in retail um, pretty much all whole foods um, we did 10 million in revenue we're really creating an entertainment company and a water company we want to actually entertain people make them laugh in service of a brand. And if you can do that, they're going to love your brand because you're giving them something of value. And Mike Cesario joins me now. Mike, you know, it's great, but is it all about the brand or is there actual incredible content here? Is the, is the product itself delicious? Yeah, I mean, the, the product is the product, like all products are, you know, I bring up, is Nike as big as it is because their shoes last 3.7 months longer than Adidas and the other competitors. No, it's most products are kind of on par from a quality level in most categories. And it truly is the brands that differentiate the products truly um, and why people gravitate towards certain brands versus other brands when in most categories, a lot of the products are of comparable value. There's small differences, but, but it's really brand that drives the, the purchase decision for, for most people. I understand that you're getting into very low calorie teas, um, but I'm curious why why you didn't go the route of, I don't know, hard seltzers. I've seen this in the store. I thought it was a hard beverage. I thought it was, you know, something with booze in it because of the awesome title and the and the name of it and all that. And to And to learn that you could be standing at a frat party drinking this and probably not get a second look from everybody else is very entertaining. So, so why not booze or, or some other kind of sugary drink? Well, the whole crux of Liquid Death was we saw a, a space where there just was not funny, cool, irreverent marketing and brands. Um, you know, people talk about Liquid Death being, you know, badass, but the reality is we're just being funny. It, it's very ironic the way that something called, you know, water is called liquid death yeah. or low calorie safe stuff is called liquid death. So we're really building a healthy beverage platform and there's enough brands in the unhealthy space. And it's less interesting when there's a brand called liquid death in that space. I think it's a lot more interesting when brands like liquid death exist in the world of healthy, healthy. And better the food. team ran out to CVS to get me one. I have mountain water here. <laughs> this sounds delicious. Hold on. I've never tasted it. You're not going to shotgun it? Come on. Oh, oh no. <laughs> that on TV, that would be memorable. I, I do have a suggestion okay. for you here. Why don't you put it in a keg and call it Till Death Do Us Party? You know, I might have to steal that from you. <laughs> What's next? Um, we just launched iced tea. Um, I think, you know, we started off as being a spring water brand then we became a sparkling water brand and then now we launched flavor sparkling last year now iced tea this year so um we're really excited about iced tea and yeah. the fact that well you know it's, w there's there's more varieties it's going to be a lot of fun i appreciate you so much coming on with us thank you and you can thank learn you. more about cnbc make it by visiting cnbcmakeit.com and also subscribe to the newsletter with a qr code on your screen all right, the Bible, a tale of two cities. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, 
25 years ago tonight, one of the most popular books in history was published. It's better known as the Sorcerer's Stone here in America. See, you'd learn something every day. As you might remember, it was a sensation, an estimated 120 million copies sold worldwide. But as the series grew, more books just kept flying off the shelves, because, you know, it's magic. In total, more than half a billion copies of J.K. Rowling's classics were sold worldwide. The Wizarding World also became one of the highest grossing movie franchises ever. 11 movies have banked nearly 10 billion bucks at the global box office. And that is your last call for tonight. We'll see you tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.